If you have a Bible, would you please take it and turn to Isaiah chapter 38. Isaiah 38 and 39, both chapters will be our our text for this afternoon. And as you're turning there, let me give you a recap of the previous two chapters. The Assyrians, after conquering the key cities and defenses of Judah, had arrived at the walls of Jerusalem, you remember, at the beginning of chapter 36. The Rabshakeh, representing King Sennacherib of Assyria, called for King Hezekiah of Judah and for his people to surrender, surrender in the hopes of receiving some mercy from the Assyrians, who were all but assured of a victory over little Judah and over Jerusalem. Hezekiah, who had failed in many ways to trust the Lord for some time, seems to have been humbled by his lack of faith and by the threat of exile, such that he called on Isaiah and he cried out to the Lord. And in response to his faith and to his prayer and for the glory of his own name, the Lord supernaturally rescued Jerusalem. You'll remember that in one day, God destroyed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers and King Sennacherib returned to Nineveh with his tail between his legs, where soon after he was murdered by his own sons in the temple of his God. A crushing defeat. After reading in the, the first part of Isaiah's prophecy, those, the chapters preceding these about King Hezekiah's father, Ahaz, And you remember that Ahaz refused to trust the Lord in any way. After reading about that, this account of Hezekiah's faith and his reliance on the Lord in prayer shines forth as an encouragement for us to trust in the Lord, no matter how difficult or helpless the situation we face might be. Chapter 37's conclusion feels like the the perfect place to end this first major section of Isaiah. Not only is, is God glorified as he delivered his people, but delivers his people, but faith is seen for the world-changing force that it is. This is the high point of Hezekiah's reign. It's a high point for his faith, and it's a triumphant note on which to close the story. However, Isaiah has a couple more things that he wants to tell us about King Hezekiah, and he saved these two stories for chapters 38 and 39. They are two stories that lack the triumph of chapters 36 and 37. They take us from Hezekiah, the the man of faith, to Hezekiah, a mortal, fickle, and self-centered man. His faith is present, but his flaws are at the forefront. In the way that he has structured these four chapters, Isaiah is almost begging us to ask why he would close his account of Hezekiah's reign in this way. I say that Because if he was telling things chronologically, chapters 38 and 39 would come before chapters 36 and 37. In other other words, for those of us who like our historical narratives to be told in chronological order, it would make more sense for the stories of chapters 38 and 39 to be read before chapters 36 and 37. And that order would then allow us to have the triumphant ending that we want with, with faith exalted and the em- enemies of God lying dead on the ground. Instead, it closes with a flashback, a flashback to at least 10 years beforehand and a much less glorious image of Hezekiah. And so, as good students of Scripture, we should ask, why? 
Why would Isaiah do that? The answer that I can give you may not be the full answer, but this is what I would say. Because Isaiah isn't done calling us to faith in the Lord alone. (laughs) And he's not going to miss another chance to reveal the reliability of faith in God as opposed to faith in human beings. Lest we are tempted to trust in the Hezekiahs of our lives, Isaiah illustrates and drives home a command that he gave us back in Isaiah 2.22. And this will be our big idea for today. Don't put your trust in mere humans. Don't put your trust in mere humans. Isaiah closes the book on Hezekiah's life with these two stories to remind us that all people are mortal and fickle, and therefore we can only find rest in our eternal and faithful God. He reminds us that even the best of men are men at best, and he drives home the call, don't put your trust in mere humans. Underneath this encouragement to not trust in mere humans, Isaiah wants us to again see how faith alone triumphs, but he also wants us to look forward to the one who was coming, and who has come to the Messiah our faith is ultimately looking for. In this section of of the book that ends at chapter 39, he is helping us to see that the coming Messiah will be the greater David, the greatest Davidic king. And if we had thought that Hezekiah might fulfill that role, it becomes clear that he will not. Instead, we are shown that a good king in the line of David like Hezekiah is not enough. We need another, another savior, we need a greater king. And we know who this Messiah is, that is Jesus, the Son of God, but that doesn't keep us from foolishly pinning our hopes on people. Mortal people whose deaths crush us, fickle people whose faithlessness and pride dishearten us, selfish people who are only looking out for themselves. We trust others and they let us down. Or maybe we trust ourselves. We rest in our own strength, only to find it fading one day. We rest in our own faith, only to find it weak and shifting. Isaiah says to us, whether we're trusting other people or trusting ourselves, don't put your trust in mere humans. Let's think about that message as we read Isaiah 38 and 39. Isaiah chapter 38, beginning in verse 1. God's word says, In those days Hezekiah became sick, and was at the point of death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die, you shall not recover. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord and said, Please, O Lord, remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah, Go and say to Hezekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of David your father, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria and will defend this city. This shall be the sign for you from the Lord that the Lord will do this thing that he has promised. Behold, I will make the shadow cast by the declining sun on the dial of Ahaz turn back 10 steps. So the sun turned back on the dial the 10 steps by which it had declined. 
a writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, after he had been sick and had recovered from his sickness. I said in the middle of my days, I must depart. I am consigned to the gates of Sheol for the rest of my years. I said, I shall not see the Lord, the Lord in the land of the living. I shall look on man no more among the inhabitants of the world. My dwelling is plucked up and removed from me like a shepherd's tent. Like a weaver, I have rolled up my life. He cuts me off from the loom. From day to night, you bring me to an end. I calmed myself until morning. Like a lion, he breaks all my bones. From day to night, you bring me to an end. Like a swallow or a crane, I chirp, I moan like a dove. My eyes are weary with looking upward. O Lord, I am oppressed. Be my pledge of safety. What shall I say? For he has spoken to me, and he himself has done it. I walk slowly all my years because of the bitterness of my soul. O Lord, by these things men live, and in all these is the life of my spirit. O restore me to health and make me live. Behold, it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness. But in love you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction. For you have cast all my sins behind your back. For shield does not thank you. Death does not praise you. Those who go down to the pit do not hope for your faithfulness. The living, the living, he thanks you as I do this day. The Father makes known to the children your faithfulness. The Lord will save me, and we will play music on stringed instruments all the days of our lives at the house of the Lord. Now Isaiah had said, let them take a cake of figs and apply it to the boil that he may recover. Hezekiah also had said, what is the sign that I shall go up to the house of the Lord. Chapter 39. At that time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that he had been sick and had recovered. And Hezekiah welcomed them gladly, and he showed them his treasure house, the silver, the gold, spices, the precious oil, his whole armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, what did these men say? And from where did they come to you? Hezekiah said, they have come to me from a far country, from Babylon. He said, what have, you, what have they seen in your house? Hezekiah answered, they have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, There will be peace and security in my days. Let's pause here for a moment and remember what's going on in Israel's story and in Isaiah's prophecy. Kind of a 10,000 foot view. Uh, of course, we are in the period of history when God's people are a divided kingdom with Israel in the north and Judah in the south. The northern kingdom of Israel, referred to as uh, Israel in the north, they, they were called to re repentance just as the southern kingdom was, but they were captured by the Assyrians, that same Assyrian army, in 722 BC and scattered. 
As we just read, Judah was nearly conquered by that same Assyrian army some 20 years later, but God rescued them. However, that prophecy that we just read in Isaiah 39.6 reveals that they too are going to be exiled eventually. It says, Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house, Hezekiah, and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Not Assyria, but Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. So we find that this would not occur in the days of Hezekiah, but it would happen at some point. And it would not be the Assyrians who would attack, but it would be the Babylonians. And we know that some 100 years later, after Hezekiah's death, this prophecy came to pass in 587 B.C. In fact, the story of Hezekiah is a parable of sorts for Judah. Hezekiah's 15 years reprieve but eventual death are parallel to Judah's rescue from Assyria, but then their, their coming exile at the hands of Babylon. Just as Hezekiah couldn't avoid death forever, Judah couldn't avoid exile forever. This chapter then, it forms a bridge Uh, for us into the second part of the book of Isaiah, and it places the certain reality of a Babylonian exile as the background for those chapters. This daunting prospect and the questions it would bring up in the hearts of the faithful remnant are what are addressed in the remainder of the book. But we'll talk about that later. That's the big picture. But let's get back to Hezekiah's story in in these two chapters and consider three reasons not to put our trust in mere humans. Remember, we're saying that Isaiah is telling us don't put your trust in mere humans. Let me give you three reasons from these two two stories of um, Hezekiah why we should not put our trust in mere humans. Before we get into that though, (laughs) let me begin by saying that the example of Hezekiah is not all bad. He was most certainly a good king in Judah in particular and in the history of Israel at large. His reforms, his his tearing down of the high places of false worship, his reliance on the Lord in prayer, these are all admirable traits that we would do well to follow. But he's also a man with feet of clay. Alec Maltier captures him well with these words. Hezekiah was one of the most truly human of the kings. He was a man whose heart was genuinely moved towards the Lord, but whose will was fickle under the pressures and temptations of life. Hezekiah then, in this sense, is all of us, isn't he? Brendan Manning writes, When I get honest, I admit I am a bundle of paradoxes. I believe and I doubt. I hope and get discouraged. I love and I hate. I feel bad about feeling good. I feel guilty about not feeling guilty. I am trusting and suspicious. I am honest and I still play games. Aristotle said, I am a rational animal. I say, I am an angel with an incredible capacity for beer. So of course there are lessons that we can learn from Hezekiah, but he also reveals the weakness of us all and of any person we might put our trust in. First thing he reminds us of is that we are all mortal. We are mortal could say it more bluntly, couldn't we? We're all going to die. The word of the Lord from Isaiah to Hezekiah in verse 1 seems to come out of nowhere, but it was probably in response to a sickness that Hezekiah had. What we later find out was either one large boil or multiple boils. In the midst of his suffering, Isaiah shows up one day and he announces to the king, get your house in order because this is it. You are not going 
to get better. You will not recover. You are going to die. Can you imagine receiving that message? We might think about those who receive a terminal diagnosis, who are told that they only have days or months to live. From a doctor, that's one thing. Can you imagine a prophet like Isaiah showing up with a word from the Lord? That's something else. Hezekiah reminds us, um, Hezekiah responds as most of us would. He turns his face to the wall in distress. He prays and he weeps. His prayer in verse 3 is interesting. He rightly looks to God as the giver of life and breath, but, but he pleads with God not on the basis of God's mercy, but on the basis of the good that he has done as a king. The writing of Hezekiah in verses 10 through 20 gives us a little bit more insight into his response to the news. Verse 10 conveys a, a sense of, of shock, in part because Hezekiah assumed that he had many days left. He says he's in the middle of his days. Historians say he was probably 39 years old, which as a 39-year-old, <laughs> I can say that feels pretty young. I too, though, can be tempted to assume that I have many years before me. But we know that youth is no guarantee of continued life. The Lord alone holds our times in his hands. Besides shock, we might sense some anger in verse 12, a questioning, a questioning of why God would cut off his life and bring him to an end. It's this illustration of a loom and, and that he feels as if his, his weaving is not yet finished, but the Lord's going to cut it off. And then there are hints of despair and even depression in verse 14 as he moans like a dove. There are those who, who study how people face death and they've talked about the stages of, of grief, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. I think we could find all of those in this narrative. Uh, with regard to Hezekiah's acceptance though, it seems to come in verse 15 from the assurance that God is the one who has done this. Like Job who eventually puts his hand over his mouth and, and while in despair, uh, while despair is still present, he, he rests in God's sovereignty. God is the one who has decreed this. This is going to happen. Well, I can't come to you today and tell you when you're going to die. <laughs> but I think we can learn from Hezekiah that we would do well to more frequently reckon with the reality of our own mortality and the mortality of those around us to walk through some of the emotions that, that come with the shadow of death that hangs over our lives, rather than to run from the certainty of death as we so often do. You know, I've heard sleep is practice for death. I think I've said that from this pulpit before, but wisdom would call us to always be entrusting ourselves to the Lord. And even each night as we close our eyes, we, we might place ourselves afresh into God's hands and trust that he is the one that's in control. We can entrust ourselves to him because he is the one who determines when the sun will finally set on our lives. And for Hezekiah, the time had not yet come. In response to Hezekiah's imperfect but faith-filled prayer, the Lord heard him and added 15 years to his life. What a gracious God we serve. How kind he was to Hezekiah, how kind he is to us. Again, parallel to Hezekiah's deliverance, Isaiah simultaneously saying, you've got 15 more years, he simultaneously prophesies about Judah's deliverance from Assyria, 
which is what we just read about in chapters 36 and, and 37. And as a sign to prove his power over Assyria and over death itself, we are told that the Lord, the Lord turned back the sun 10 steps. Now, if you want a scientific explanation for how that's possible, I do not have one. <laughs> but God is the ruler of space and time who holds all things together. He is the one who can add minutes, days, and years to our lives. He is the one who can defeat death completely through resurrection. And so I have no problem believing that he can move the shadow of the sun back and still keep the cosmos in order. Hezekiah's response to all of this is found in the latter part of his song. He acknowledges that the restoration of his health was purely an act of God's miraculous strength and of his mercy and love. In verse 17, Hezekiah seems to acknowledge his sin. His, his final hope was not in what he had done or not done, but in the mercy of God towards him, a mercy that would forgive him for his failings and prolong his life. And so Hezekiah says that he will most surely praise the Lord for his deliverance. He will give thanks to him all his days. This is no surprise. When the Lord is gracious to us, when he answers our prayers, when he heals and restores us, what do we do? We respond with praise. We even, we recommit ourselves to the Lord, promising to trust him more quickly and to be more fully devoted to his word. There are promises that we all make when God shows us his grace and he reveals his power to us. But in his response to the possible end of his life and then the story of chapter 39 that follows close on its heels, we see that we should not put our trust in mere humans, not only because we are mortal, but also because we are fickle. <laughs> we are fickle, ever-changing. It was in response to the news that Hezekiah had been healed that a delegation from Babylon arrived in Jerusalem. Of course, that was probably not the only reason that they were there. As Assyria continued to eat up the nations all around them, alliances were constantly being formed. And while it was hard to imagine, it's hard to imagine knowing what Babylon's going to do to Judah in the future, in this moment, King Hezekiah was likely trying to get King Baladan of Babylon on his side in some sort of an alliance. This, this tour of the treasures of his house wasn't like the tour that you, uh, of your new house that you give when your friends come over for the first time. No, this is a calculated tour. This is calculated to, to court the favor of Babylon. It was intended to show the resources and the wealth of Judah and why they would be a good and advantageous ally for Babylon. So here is Hezekiah, not even a year, not even a year after the Lord has miraculously extended his life after his impassioned pleas, not even a year after he watched the Lord turn back the sun as proof of his power, not even a year after all of his promises to praise the Lord for his whole life. And here he is turning to a foreign earthly king for security and preservation. Why? Why would he do that? Well, at least in part, because the crisis had passed. He was alive. The crisis was over. His life was no longer under threat. In fact, he'd been guaranteed 15 more years of life. So he returns to his old ways. He forgets the power of God. He forgets the security of faith and prayer. He forgets all the promises that he had made. What about us? What about us? When the crisis passes, do we forget God? 
In the midst of sickness, we call out to him for help, but when our health is good, do we fail to trust him each day? On the first day of school, first day of a new job, we ask him for help, but in week three, are we suddenly relying on our own strength every day? With the first child, we pray all the time. We pray for them, pray for ourselves, ask God for help. But then the second and the third come along, maybe the seventh. (laughs) And we just start hoping in ourselves. We start trusting our own wisdom. We think we got it covered. A pandemic strikes. And we're asking God to be glorified through the healing of the sick and in the decisions of leaders. But then a year later, our hope is in vaccines and stimulus checks more than it is in God. Just to be clear, that's not a statement against, against the vaccine. It's a statement against trusting in the vaccine rather than trusting in God. You can come up with your own examples, I'm sure, of times where we trust the Lord and then when he delivers us, we fail to trust. How we are fickle. As Trevor was praying, I just hadn't even made that connection to the fickle crowd on, um, on Palm Sunday, how they trusted the Lord and then turned so quickly. How often we are like that, that we cry Hosanna and then we cry crucify. The fickleness of our faith often turns prayer into a good luck charm. It's a rabbit's foot that we turn to when times are tough and then we lose it underneath the bed when everything is fine. We are fickle and so we are tempted to trust, we, we, and, and so are, we are fickle, and so are the people besides ourselves that we're tempted to trust in. How often we have seen over and over again, it's not just our generation, it's every generation, how often we've seen faithful, godly leaders that we trusted in, whose faith has faded, and who trusted in their own intellect, or their own strength, or their own wealth. Hezekiah, Hezekiah proves to be a fickle, ever-changing, easily swayed man. And so are we. Don't put your trust in mere humans. Why? Because we are mortal, we are fickle, and finally we are selfish. We are selfish. <laughs> the final words, this is the, this is the, the last time Hezekiah is going to talk is at the end of chapter 39. And the final words that we hear from Hezekiah after hearing of the future destruction of his people and of his sons are these. Not my problem. The word of the Lord is good, he says. Why? Because I don't have to face these things. The sad reality for we as human beings is that the draw towards always looking out for number one is impossible to shake apart from the supernatural work of God. There has been common grace in our world. I was thinking about this in this past year as people have made sacrifices to save the lives of the most vulnerable. But, but we have also seen people taking advantage of the help that's being given. We've heard about people dressing up like elderly people so they can get the vaccine sooner. (laughs) On all sides of the political spectrum, it is impossible to suppress our selfishness on our own. And those who promise to help us, whether they be Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, King Hezekiah, or the like in our world, they are all likely doing it for their own self-interest in at least some small way, if not completely. We know that. Why? Because our own hearts are desperately wicked and do the exact same thing. 
Hezekiah reminds us, don't put your trust in mere humans. Why? Because we are mortal, we are fickle, and we are selfish. So what do we do? What do we do when we, when we see the weakness of others? Well, we may be tempted to bitterness or anger or disappointment. Many have thrown, out the, thrown their faith out the window because of the faithful, faithlessness of people that they once trusted. Or we may be led towards cynicism. We refuse to trust anyone. The people that said they were faithful failed us, and now I can't trust anyone. What about when we see our own weaknesses? That we are mortal, that we are fickle, we are selfish. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm just tempted to try harder. Sure, I can't beat death on my own, but I can strive to be more faithful. I can be less self-centered. But what does the gospel tell us to do? The gospel calls us not to try harder, but to trust deeper. Brendan Manning, after acknowledging the paradoxes in his soul that I read earlier, he goes on to say this. To live by grace means to acknowledge my whole life story, the light side and the dark. In admitting my shadow side, I learn who I am and what God's grace means. As Thomas Merton put it, a saint is not someone who is good, but who experiences the goodness of God. Grace proclaims the awesome truth that all is gift. All that is good is ours, not by right, but by the sheer bounty of a gracious God. While there is much we may have earned, all this is possible only because we have been given so much. We've been given so much. Life itself, eyes to see and hands to touch, a mind to shape ideas, and a heart to beat with love. We have been given God in our souls and Christ in our flesh. We have the power to believe where others deny, to hope where others despair, to love where others hurt. This and so much more is sheer gift. It is not reward for our faithfulness, our generous disposition, or our heroic life of prayer. Even our fidelity is a gift. If we but turn to God, said St. Augustine, that itself is a gift of God. My deepest awareness, says Brennan Manning, my deepest awareness of myself is that I am deeply loved by Jesus Christ and I have done nothing to earn it or deserve it. So, instead of responding to our weakness or the weakness of others by, by trying harder or by being led into bitterness or anger or disappointment or cynicism because of, of the weakness of others, instead of that, Isaiah would have us as people of God respond by trusting the Lord. By, by trusting the Lord who is everything that we are not and who can give us everything that we need. Hezekiah was a good king. He's, he's in the list of good kings, but he was not the king that we need, nor is anyone else, nor are we the king that we need for ourselves. You know what we need? Here's what we need. We need a king who isn't fickle, but who humbly and consistently trusts the Lord alone. We need a king who isn't selfish, but who seeks the good of all people. And once we find a king like that, we need him to live and reign forever and never die. <laughs> and we can only find a king like that 
in the person of Jesus. So, I say to you on this Palm Sunday, look to Jesus. Watch Jesus come into Jerusalem, humble, seated on a donkey. See him before his accusers as he asks them, what good deed are you going to kill me for? Because his entire life and ministry was seeking the good of other people. And even as they killed him, he was not concerned about his own welfare, but he was dying for the welfare of his people. And then see Jesus rise, defeating death, not only for himself, but for all who trust in him and bow before his perfect throne of justice and grace. Isaiah would tell us, I think, turn your eyes away from yourself. Turn your eyes away from others, those who are faithful and those who are faithless. Turn away from every other refuge and turn your eyes upon Jesus. Trust in the eternal, faithful Savior who selflessly lived and died so that he might throw all of our sins behind his back and make us his own by grace alone through faith in him alone. Trust Jesus. Would you take a moment of silence to reflect on God's word and then I will pray. Father, we think we are invincible, but we are so mortal. We think that we are so faithful, and yet we are fickle. And we think that we can somehow do good on our own, enough good to court your favor, but Lord, we are so self-centered and self-focused. Lord, you're shaping us by your grace more into the image of Jesus, but help us never to trust ourselves or to trust anyone but you. Help us to never put our hope fully in anything or anyone else other than Christ. Jesus, you are the king that we need. You're the only one who could save us. And so we afresh put our faith and our hope in you and ask, Lord, that you would tear down all other refuges, that you would help us um, to always turn to you because we will never be disappointed. We will never be let down. Lord, you are always faithful. Lord, fill us with renewed faith in Jesus today. Ask it all in his name. Amen.